Every time I dig into the Psalms, I'm reminded of how much more I need to dig in the, into the Psalms. Uh, this one has been a, a delight and a, and a source of, of joy and comfort and challenge this week. And so we're just going to jump right in. Psalm 5, this is God's Word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together this morning. Oh God, we have to keep coming back to you again and again because we need help. If we're going to understand this word correctly, that you through your Holy Spirit inspired, we need your help. And so we cry out just like the psalmist cried out. We cry for help. We cry out for help with a sense of expectation because we know it's a prayer that you delight to answer. We expect you to answer. We expect you to show us the truth of your word this morning and not just to show it to us, but to change us with it. So that's our prayer. That's our earnest expectation this morning, Lord. We present that request to you in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. If you have spent much time at all in Presbyterian churches or around Presbyterians in, I'm going to say the last 15 or 20 years, then you've likely heard the imperative that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And if you've not heard it phrased exactly like that, you've probably heard an exhortation that the gospel isn't just for the lost. The gospel isn't just a message of salvation that you need to hear once and then you graduate from and move on to other things. No, the gospel is something that we need for every day of the Christian life. 
And so either of these things, if you've heard them, they might make perfect sense to you and you're like, yep, I'm right there with you. Or it, it might leave you scratching your head a little bit. How would I go about preaching the gospel to myself? What does that, what does that mean? But these are important ideas. These are good, solid concepts. And as I was working through this psalm this week, I began to realize that that's exactly what this psalmist is doing. Though he wrote this a thousand years before Christ would come, gospel truth is in this psalm. This gospel for every day life. If there are truths that I need to rehearse and repeat to myself every day, is there is, if, if there is not just saving, but transforming knowledge and power that I need to depend on every day of my life, this simple psalm does a tremendous job of showing that to us. You've got an outline in your bulletin. I've, I've roughly divided the psalm into three parts. Daily dependence, gospel remembrance, and then gospel resemblance. Worked hard on those, making those fit together like that. First three verses, there's this daily dependence. And we have in this psalm what is familiar in a lot of psalms, and that's a cry for help. And we're not told the specifics of the situation, which is part of the beauty of the Psalms. Right? Very often, the psalmist is general enough that the truths about who God is and what He's like and what He's doing are easily applied to lots of God's people in lots of situations and circumstances. But whatever the psalmist is dealing with, it must be pretty bad or at least something that is just ongoing. We know that from, from the groaning in verse 1. Right, hear, my, hear my groaning. All right, there's some deep ache. Perhaps it's physical. Perhaps it's emotional. Perhaps it's situational and it has something to do with these enemies that he's talking about. But he's groaning. Verse 2, listen not just to my cry, but to the sound of my cry. Do you hear it, Lord? Do you hear it, O God? And here's one of the beautiful things that keeps me turning back to the Psalms again and again and again. It's this honesty. This honesty with which the psalmist cries out. It's never sugar-coated. It's never whitewashed. It's just honest. This is terrible, Lord. Where have you gone? Where are you? I hope you pray like that to the Lord, honestly. And you don't feel like you have to come in these flowery expressions. And I hope you're honest with the Lord. It's very similar to some of the complaints we've heard recently from Ecclesiastes, right? Why are the wicked prospering? Why are the good. Why are the good guys getting their tails kicked on a regular basis? And so there's this honesty, right? But it's not honesty that's wallowing in self-pity. 
It's honesty that leads somewhere, and where it's leading is to God. There is movement in this honesty toward the Lord. And you see it over and over in the Psalms. There's movement toward the sanctuary. There's movement toward the Lord in crying out for help. And you see in verse 2, there's another aspect of this. This crying out is done in a very personal way. Who's he crying out to? My King and my God. This is not abstract. It's not arbitrary. There's a relationship here. This is personal. And by its very nature, this crying out is a beautiful expression of, of dependence. Because right? if you're crying out for help, you're admitting, I can't do this on my own. There's something interesting at work in verse 3. You may have a footnote, depending on what translation you have, of this phrase, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. This, this is language of the altar. This is language of positioning the wood, getting ready for the fire. It's positioning this animal that you have killed and cut up into pieces. Right? So there's, there's altar language involved. Or it could be just simply the language of prayer. And so your footnote might say, instead of I prepare a sacrifice, I direct my prayer to you. And so the commentaries, you know, anytime something like this happens, the, common, the commentators just spill tons and tons of ink over it. And they're fretting and, oh, what is it? Is it a sacrifice or is it a prayer? And I should write commentaries because I would just say, well, of course. The answer is yes. Right? This isn't difficult. Because what could be a more sweet-smelling aroma to the Father? than for our cries of helpless dependence to rise up to Him on a regular basis. Sure, it's a sacrifice, and of course it's a prayer. I can't do this, Lord. I need help. And I know You can. You see that at the end of verse 3, right? Whatever it is, a, a prayer or a sacrifice, I do it, and then what do I do? I watch. I watch. I wait. I'm expecting something to happen here. Both the crying out and the sense of expectation bring glory and honor to our Father. And so as we live lives in daily dependence on him we're, we're praising and glorifying him but here's the thing and this moves us into our second point into the second section real daily dependence day in and day out has got to be rooted in the gospel because let me give you a little reality check it would be easy to read this psalm and a whole bunch of other psalms and think all right there's this cry for help and the lord shows up isn't that cool Man, it's good to have a God like that. All right? Um, but here's the reality check for you. Uh, God doesn't just simply exist as the big guy upstairs to get you out of jams every now and then. His existence 
is far bigger than that. And so it might be easy to say, oh, I'm in a tight, oh, Lord, would you bail me out? Whew, I'm so glad he did. But he's existed for all eternity. And before the foundation of the world, and long before he created you and me, he set a plan into place. And in his sovereign rule and reign, he is ordaining and overseeing everything that comes to pass for his plan to unfold. And so our daily dependence has to be rooted in something bigger and deeper than just he's the big guy upstairs who will occasionally help me out. Our daily dependence has to be rooted in who God is and what he's doing. And we get a real sense of that from the psalmist in verse 4. So he's crying out for help in the first three verses. And in verse 4 he says, For you are not a God who? Right? So he has rooted this cry for help in these first three verses in the character of God. Right? I'm crying out for I know that you're not a God who... And in this particular instance, I know you're not a God who delights in wickedness. The psalmist knows the Lord. He knows what He's like. And it's out of this knowledge that his prayer rises. Is that where our prayers rise up from? Out of the knowledge of who he is and what he's doing? Or is it just simply the nature of the pickle that we're in? The situation that we're really hoping works out in our favor. As the psalmist prays, we reap the benefit sort of as he prays and as he's revealing this knowledge that he's basing his prayer out, out of, we benefit from that along the way. And one of the very first things we see here in verse 4 is a big one. And it's something that we often will allude to maybe in a gospel presentation to someone. We're talking to someone about the Lord. We're trying perhaps to even get them to see their need for a Savior, to get them to see the predicament that they're in and we'll talk to folks about how God's holy and He's righteous and He is separate from sinful man. Right? That there's this impenetrable separation that exists between a holy God and sinful, rebellious man. And we often allude to it, but where does it come from in Scripture? Well, among other places, it comes right here. You're not a God who delights in wickedness, verse 4. Evil may not dwell with you. The two just don't mix, right? It, it's darkness and light. As soon as light shows up in darkness, what doesn't exist anymore? And so you've got a lot of description here of this wickedness, of this evil, wickedness, evil, boasting, lying, deceit, bloodthirsty. And if you read carefully, There's some really strong and uncomfortable language here. The end of verse 5 and all of verse 6 probably makes you squirm a little bit. 
You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. So we've all heard this expression and probably many of us have used it, right? The Lord hates the sin but loves the sinner. Yeah, about that. Y'all, we are uncomfortable with this idea of a God who would hate and who would destroy. Let me just tell you, it's not a modern problem either. Through the ages, people have tripped on this. They've tried to make God more palatable. Tried to give Him a PR makeover. Soften some of these edges a little bit. Because this doesn't sell too good. And I know that on the surface, this can be a little difficult to swallow. But it need not be explained away. For a couple of reasons. Number one, because Scripture is just very clear. (laughs) But the second thing is, is that as we come to the grips with this admittedly difficult reality. But as we come to grips with this, it actually gives the gospel great meaning. Because who of us, if we're honest, can't find ourselves in these descriptors of evil? And wickedness. Who of us hasn't been boastful or deceitful, lying, bloodthirsty, right? If not for the actual act, right? I've, I've killed many a person on the interstate. See, we are the evildoers. We would be the recipients of God's hate and destruction, and deservedly so, if not for the gospel. And so, is it a difficult reality? Yes. I make no bones about that. But it is, a, is it a reality that we need to apologize for and be embarrassed about and try to explain away? No. Because the reality of our sin and the reality of God's hatred, not just of the sin, but of those who do it, is the backdrop against which the beauty of the gospel gets displayed and projected for all to see. you see the psalmist really begin to get into gospel truth in verse 7. He's cried out for help. He's given this really accurate description of evil and wickedness and God's 
abhorrence of it. But then in verse 7, there's a turn. There's a but I. And so David's saying, you, you hate them, you abhor them, you're going to destroy them, but I. And he sets himself apart from them. And he says, I'm different. I'm not included in their number because... And here's where we have to pause for just a moment. Because what you put on the other side of your but I can be a deal breaker. It makes all the difference in the world. Right? And people come up with a wide variety of things to put on the other side of their but I. Right? Because nobody really wants to lump themselves in with these wicked and evildoers and bloodthirsty who are the, the recipients and the objects of God's hatred and destruction. And so we're quick to separate ourselves and say, whoa, not me. Because I am basically a good person. Darn it. I'm a lot better than the next guy. But, but I have been a member of my church all my life. But I sing in the choir. But I insert whatever religious activity you want. Insert my, my good deeds far out. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but, but the good that I've done far outweighs the bad. Deal breaker. Game over. And it's not what the psalmist puts on the other side of his but I. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you would be honest enough, perhaps even for the first time, to say, I'm not saying but I. I, I, I see now, maybe for the first time, how clearly that, that I haven't lived the life that I should live. And, and I don't know what needs to come on the other side of this but I for it to work but the psalmist did. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. So it's this great word. Some of your translations may say loving kindness. It's this Hebrew word, hesed. And there's so much wrapped up into it. It's why you see it so many different ways in English translations, trying to capture a part of it. But at its core, there's this faithful, never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, covenant-keeping love. And so this, this plan that I mentioned earlier, God, uh, before the foundation of the world, setting a plan in place and sovereignly ruling and reigning to see that it comes about, it, it's a covenant, it's an agreement that He made with His people. And the beauty about what he's done, if you read the scriptures, is, is that he not only is the covenant maker, but he's the covenant keeper too, because we couldn't hold up our end of the deal. That's what steadfast love is. And it's because of this kind of love that the psalmist has the confidence to say, I'm going into his house. This place where evil cannot dwell I'm going in. Not based on any 
notice he didn't say my anything, all right? But I, and it's nothing to do with him, and it's all about the Lord's steadfast love. And so, what is it about this love that makes the difference? What is it about this this gospel, this good news that we need every day for the rest of our lives? It goes back to what happens to this hatred and this destruction. Because God's hatred and His destruction, they don't just go away. They don't just get swept under a rug somewhere and say, nah, that's all right. His hatred gets expressed. His destruction, His just destruction is carried out on Himself. God takes on flesh. Jesus, the Son, who Himself knew no sin, takes on our sin. And is destroyed for us. God hates the evildoer. He will destroy the wicked. And so, here's the essence of the gospel. Here's what this steadfast love has done. We are spared at His expense. And a real daily dependence on Him that's going to last has its roots right here. This isn't just the big man upstairs who feels benevolent toward me every now and then like a grandfather might. Helps me out of a bind. No, friends, it is much deeper than that. And so our daily dependence finds its roots in gospel remembrance, which ultimately leads to gospel resemblance. The same gospel that saves does in fact transform. To be loved like this changes you forever. And we get some hints of what that looks like, of how life is different for the psalmist in in the remainder of the psalm. Life is different, right? But notice right off the bat, it doesn't necessarily mean the problems are going to vanish and disappear. The problems are still, still there. They may, Christ follower, they may, child of God, even get worse. Right? The gospel doesn't promise an easy problem-free life, but it does promise resources. One of, one of my favorite verses in Romans 8, in the midst of Paul's beautiful description of the gospel and all that it has accomplished for us and all that is available to us, is this Romans 8.32. Um, and Paul's saying, For God did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him 
graciously give us all things. And so my understanding of that verse is, if God has met our deepest, darkest, most significant need we could ever imagine, standing guilty before Him, and He spared no expense at doing it, He took on flesh, and He took in Himself, absorbed in Himself, this hatred and this destruction. How can anything else we will face in this life compare to that? And how could we ever wonder if He will show up for us in any necessarily lesser situation and lesser trial and lesser problem if He's already given everything? So we're not promised easy. We're not promised um, a lack of difficulty. But the Gospel does promise resources. And so the psalmist has resources even to deal with these enemies of whom he was once just like. And so pay close attention to what the psalmist prays for. Um, And remember that he's praying out of his knowledge of who God is and what God does. This is where his prayers are bubbling up out of. And so the first thing he's praying for is is obviously, you know, he's, he's praying for uh, leading and guiding there in verse 8. But then in verse 10, as he starts to, to consider these enemies, all right, there are still these enemies. <laughs> all right, these things, I've been groaning about them. I've been crying out about them. And so the first thing he prays makes sense. Lord, give them justice. All right? Make them bear their guilt. And this would be just. It says there's an abundance of transgression and rebellion. And so perhaps that's what we pray when we see videos that have been posted online that that we just can't even believe. And we can't believe that there's not more of of an outcry from people about the atrocities that are going on and that are being funded with our tax dollars. And so this might be a legitimate thing to pray. Lord, be just. Bring your justice. He's he's glorified by that. And so that's legitimate. But there's also something else to consider now too. And I think that's a little of what the psalmist is doing when he gets to verse 11. He might just simply be thinking back to himself. Right? And again, thinking about, well, I'm, I'm different now, and, and so there's rejoicing. But I really think as I read through this and as I just poured over it, I think there may be, even in the psalmist's view, some consideration now for his enemies too. Right? So verse 10 is all about justice. Lord, let them bear their guilt, and God will be glorified by that. Verse 11, but let those who take refuge in you rejoice. Would that some of these people involved in these atrocities would not only come to see the evil of what they have done 
as they face judgment. But might they see it sooner? Might they see it and be changed? Might they come to see their need and take refuge? Perhaps they'll experience what we've experienced. Perhaps they'll know the joy. Perhaps they'll come to a place where they can love the name of the Lord and exult in that name instead of in the the freedom and the choice that they so doggedly pursue. Perhaps they too might be able to experience the blessing that comes to those whom the Lord has covered with His righteousness, with favor as with a shield. Folks, we, we can depend on Him daily. And we can do that as we remember this glorious gospel of grace and we will be transformed by it. We will be brought into greater conformity the image of the Son, we will be brought to resemble this gospel even more and more. That's my prayer for us this morning. Oh Lord, would you bring it to pass? Your gospel is powerful for the salvation of everyone who believes. And your mercy is strong. Your steadfast love is far-reaching. It reached even us, Lord. It can reach others. We pray that it would. We pray that You'd be exalted and glorified either in Your execution of justice or in Your dispensing of more mercy. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.